0: If you have a Bible, our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to reference a few verses in chapter 1 as we begin. There's notes in the bulletin. If you'd like to follow along with the message this morning, at the beginning of this year, we're spending a couple of months talking about the church. What is the church? What does it mean to be part of the church? We're doing this on Sunday mornings here at the beginning of the year because it's my conviction that the last couple of years have revealed uh, misunderstanding that was already there amongst many Christians and in many churches. But this misunderstanding about what the church is and why we're part of the church and how it ought to operate uh, has been magnified over the last couple of years with all of the circumstances and situations that we found ourselves in. And so we're just trying to be clear about some very basic things as a church, asking the question, who are we and what does it mean to be part of the body of Christ. So week one, we looked at the Gospel of Matthew, and we talked about the word church, ecclesia, and we talked about what it means to be part of a congregation or an assembly. Week two, we talked about being part of the body of Christ. What did Paul say to the church in Corinth about what it means to be part of the body and the importance of that Week 3, what does it mean? Ephesians 2, to be part of God's family, to be adopted in as children. And then last week, Corey preached on what does it mean that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We, individual Christians, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's also true that we, together, as a church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we're going to talk about the idea that the church is called to be a holy nation. A holy nation. So our passage is 1 Peter 2. I want to just find our bearings in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter. It's written by Peter. And it's written to a group of Christians that he describes in verse 1 as elect exiles. Christians who had been dispersed, or you might say scattered, all across the Roman Empire. So let me make one comment about Peter, the author. This is Peter, the Apostle Peter, the same guy you read about in the Gospels who can't seem to get out of his own way, who's always saying foolish things, who's always talking when he should be quiet, who's always bragging and popping off about how great he is, and then he falls on his face. It's the same guy, and it's not the same guy. Because when he wrote this letter, he's older, and he's wiser and he's matured, and God's grace and his spirit have been at work to sanctify him and to make him into, really, what you might say is a different person. And if you live any number of years as a follower of Jesus, you can probably relate to Peter. You can probably look back to your early days as a baby Christian and then see where God has brought you in the meantime and say, I'm the same person, but really, I'm not the same person. So Peter has changed, and he's matured, and he's writing to a group of people, many of whom used to be part of his church at First Baptist in Jerusalem. right? The early church starts in Jerusalem, and I'll put a map on the screen so you can visualize this. All those colors are Roman provinces in the first century A.D., And the little circle, yellow down on the bottom right, is the Roman province of Judea, where Jerusalem was located. And you can look at the Roman Empire in this sense, and you can understand why the Romans thought of Judea as a backwater. I mean, it was all the way out in the east, in the middle of nowhere. It was detached from all the big, major, important places, but that's where the church started, in Jerusalem. And then... You can read about this in the book of Acts. A persecution broke out against the church, and many of the Christians, the first church members, were scattered. They were dispersed. And Peter says that he's writing in particular to believers, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's chapter 1, verse 1, and that's the big yellow oval up above where you see Jerusalem. Now, one of the things that you need to understand about 1 Peter is that 1 Peter is a letter, is a Trinitarian book. From the very beginning, Peter puts his cards on the table and he helps us understand that who we are as a church is shaped by who God is as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so you'll notice what he says in chapter 1 verse 2. He's writing to these believers scattered through all these provinces according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with His blood. We saw something very similar when we talked about what it means to be part of the family of God in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, we've been brought into God's family. Ephesians 1, God has saved us by the Father planning our salvation, the Son accomplishing our salvation, and the Spirit applying salvation to our lives and sealing us, keeping us for the day of salvation. Peter's talking about the same thing Paul was talking about in Ephesians 1 here in 1 Peter 1, 2. The foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, obedience to Jesus, and sprinkling, being made clean by the blood of Jesus. So this is a Trinitarian book. Now there's a number of themes in the book that we might talk about. I've listed a few of them for you. There is a theme here of holiness and of scripture and of suffering and of false teaching. In each of those themes, if we had time, we could tie back to who we are as the church. And we could say, for example, as the church, we are called to be a holy people. Corey talked about that last week. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes people more holy. Peter has this same idea in his book. We could talk about the authority of Scripture. Where do we get our beliefs from? Where do we draw our doctrine from? How do we decide who we are and what we're going to do? Well, Peter would have us uh, base all of those things on the Scripture, the authority of the Scriptures. We could talk about suffering. As the people of God, we can expect... Suffering. And as the people of God, we have to be on the lookout for false teaching. All of those themes that are woven throughout the book of 1 Peter can be connected with what he says about the church. Here's what he says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. The church is a holy nation. The church is a holy nation. Now, I understand in the two verses that we're about to read that A holy nation is not the only thing Peter says about the church. but What I'm saying to you is that what Peter says about the church, and he uses several descriptors here, we'll read them in just a moment, they all go together, and we're using the phrase a holy nation to stand for all of the things that Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and verse 10. So take your copy of the Scriptures, we'll read these two verses, and then we'll pray and ask God to bless the reading of His Word. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, we come to you this morning grateful that you've spoken to us in the scriptures. And Father, we simply pray that you would open our minds to what Peter is telling us about you and about the church and about what it means to be part of your church. Lord, shape us individually and in our families and as a congregation, as an assembly into the people that you would have us to be. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. July 13th, 1930, the very first two World Cup soccer games were played in Uruguay. Any World Cup fans this morning? That's the United States, so a few, but not many. So the very first two games played in Uruguay 1930 in the month of July, the very first two games were this. France defeated Mexico 4 to 1 and this is something Americans will be happy to hear. In the second game the United States defeated Belgium 3 to nothing. And that was kind of the high point in the World Cup for the United States. We won our first match and it's kind of been uh, a disappointment since then. It's amazing to think about how popular the World Cup is today from where it started in 1930. We just had a World Cup this last year. Argentina won uh, the World Cup in this last year. The very first World Cup in 1930 was won by Uruguay, and they defeated Argentina. This year, the winners were Argentina. And again, it's hard to imagine how popular soccer is or football is around the world. The best media estimates from this last World Cup, tell us that 5 billion people on the planet watched at least one full World Cup match. 5 billion. Again, show of hands, how many people in this room watched a World Cup match? Okay, way less than half. But what I'm saying to you is that way more than half of the people who live on planet Earth watched at least one world cup match 1.5 billion people watched the championship match 1.5 billion people to which you say whatever big deal it's soccer we're americans and we like football we have the super bowl the super bowl is a way bigger deal than the world cup you know how many people watched the last super bowl not even 100 million We're talking about 1.5 billion, about 16 times more people watched one match and 5 billion people on the planet watched one match during the course of the tournament. Just amazing, the popularity of the World Cup. What do you attribute that to? Well maybe you would say it's soccer. People all over the world love soccer. It's the global sport. People all over the world don't play American football. They don't like baseball. That's the American pastime. Basketball is growing in popularity, but it's not as popular in many parts of the world. People just love soccer, and I would agree with you. I would also suggest that people are fascinated when nations compete. It's just riveting to say it's Uruguay versus Argentina. It's the United States versus whoever. That captivates our imagination. And you know it's true because we watch the Olympics. And we love the Olympics as a people. People all over the world love the Olympics because it's nation versus nation. How many of you, when you're not watching the Olympics, love to sit down and watch swimming races? If it's not your kid or grandkid, probably not. Anybody watched a bobsled race outside of the Olympics in the last 10 years? Probably not many. All sorts of sports we have very little interest in, we watch when it's nation versus nation. And we say, as Americans, we got to beat the Russians. We got the Russians, they're cheaters, they're all doping, they're the worst. We don't like the Russians. We got to beat the Russians. We play China and we say, we got to get more medals than China. We got to beat China. All billions and billions of them. There's only 300 million of us. We got to beat the big evil Chinese over there. And we are just fascinated with this competition between nations. Now, we just read a passage in the Bible that says that you and I, as Christians, the church, that we are called to be a holy nation. Holy nation. And what I'm saying to you is that to understand what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 2 9 and 10, don't think about the World Cup, nation versus nation. Don't think about the Summer or the Winter Olympics where nations compete against other nations. Don't think about the the cable news channel of your favorite variety where they talk about what's happening in this nation or that nation. If you want to understand what Peter's saying when he says that we as Christians, we as the church are a holy nation, you don't look at the World Cup or the Olympics or cable news. You look at the Old Testament, and you understand that everything Peter is saying about the church, he's pulling right out of the Old Testament, and in some ways He's making comparisons and in some ways he's making contrasts. So we'll start with this question. What is the Old Testament background for the idea that the church is a holy nation? And to understand the Old Testament background you have to go all the way back to Abraham. God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. Who was Abraham? Well he was a man who lived thousands of years ago. He was married. He had no children. He had a reasonable amount of wealth, but he had no heir to leave his wealth to. He had no offspring of his own. He was old, his wife was old, and one day Yahweh the Lord appeared to Abram at the time and said, Abram, you're going to stop worshiping idols and you're going to worship me. And this God, Yahweh, just started making promises To Abraham. He entered into a relationship with Abraham. And the relationship was simple. God would make the promises and Abraham would believe. God would make a promise and Abraham would have faith. God would say to Abraham, This is going to happen. And God would, in time, make it happen. And Abram's part, or Abraham's part, was to believe that God would keep his word. If you read in Genesis 12, one of the very first things that God said to Abram was, I will make you a great nation. The man had no children, and God said that he would make him a great nation. In Genesis chapter 15, just a few verses later, God said to Abraham, still Abram at the time, your offspring will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. That's how great a nation I will make you. There will be more of you than stars in the heavens. In Genesis chapter 17, God said to Abraham, not only would he make him a great nation, but he would turn him into a multitude of nations. So understand when Peter, a Jew, says to Christians, the church, that you are a holy nation, the foundation for what Peter is saying goes all the way back to God's covenant promises with a man named Abram, a man named Abraham. Secondly, those promises were passed to Israel. God described the nation of Israel as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession. Peter's not making this stuff up. He's only quoting what God said to Israel in the Old Testament. So, we've read... 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Notice the parallels in these two passages. Exodus 19. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's almost word for word what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He said this, Moses said this to the Exodus generation. And then Moses said it to the children of the Exodus generation in Deuteronomy 7. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This nation that God formed out of Abraham's family, that Moses led out of Egypt, that Joshua led into the promised land that David ruled over as king. They were a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, God's own possession. If you fast forward in the story of the Old Testament, you end up in a very dark period called the exile. God remembered His promises to Abram and his family and the nation of Israel, and the people of Israel forgot. Over and over and over again, they forgot Who God was and what he had done for them. And so God sent his people into exile. And it's quite a shocking thing when it happens. This people who were called a holy nation are no longer a nation. They literally lose the nation. They're not in control of the land. They're not in control of their borders. Most of them don't even live in the promised land. They are scattered. You remember what Peter said, chapter 1, verse 1, to the elect exiles of the dispersion, those who have been dispersed, those who have been scattered? That's exactly what happened to God's people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. In 722, the Assyrians took the northern kingdom into exile, and 586, the Babylonians took the southern kingdom into exile, and all of God's people were scattered, and there literally was no nation, And God's promises about making Abraham a nation seem very doubtful. And then God gives a word of hope, several words of hope, but one in particular through a young Jewish boy named Daniel who was living not in the promised land but in Babylon. God used Daniel to describe a day when a new kind of nation would be established, one that would have no end. So we're not going to read Daniel 2. Let me just remind you what's happening in Daniel chapter 2. The king at the time is a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in the dream, he sees a statue that looks something, maybe, sort of, kind of like this. It's a big giant statue, and it has four levels to it. The head is made of gold. And when Daniel tells him the dream and interprets the dream, he says, you're the head of gold, Babylon is the gold. And then the next level, the torso is silver. And Daniel says, your kingdom is going to come to an end. The Babylonian Empire will end, and there will be another nation, Persians. They're represented by the silver. But then they're going to come to an end, and there's going to be another nation, the torso made of bronze, that's Greece. But then they're going to come to an end, and there's going to be a fourth nation, a fourth world empire made of iron and clay, that would be Rome. And this dream was intended to be a warning to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you are not the end-all, be-all. Your kingdom will not be the last, and it will not last forever. You need to humble yourself, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen to that warning at all. So it's a warning for Nebuchadnezzar. It's encouragement for God's people. Here's why it's encouragement. In the dream, you see the statue. Out of nowhere comes a rock, a stone. It's otherworldly. Daniel says it was not cut by a human hand. And this stone comes firing into the statue, hits the statue, literally blows it to smithereens. Daniel says when the stone hits the statue, it's going to be broken into pieces and blown away by the wind. And this stone, otherworldly stone that comes during this fourth kingdom, will be rooted And it will grow, and it will become a new kind of kingdom. It will fill the whole earth, and it will not have an end. It's not just another layer in the statue. It's something completely new and different. But it's a kingdom, and it's going to take the place of these other kingdoms. Daniel speaks this word of hope to God's people. And what God's people hear through this king's dream is, I'm not done working through you and with you. I'm not giving up on my promises to you. There will be other kingdoms that come, and they rise and they fall. And in the days of this fourth kingdom, someone otherworldly will come. We know him as the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will establish a new kind of kingdom. A new kind of nation. It's not just going to be like Babylon, Persia, Greece. Rome, it's going to be something completely different that will grow and fill the whole earth. So that brings us to First Peter two, and Peter using this language that the church is a holy nation. So let's ask this question. What does First Peter two teach us about the church? Number one, the church is a believing community, not an ethnic community. This is one of the differences between Old Testament Israel and the church as the people of God. In the old covenant, all you had to do to be part of the covenant community was be physically born into the right family, have the right DNA. You're part of the community. In the new covenant, that's not enough. You have to be born again. You have to be born spiritually to enter into this kingdom. You have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the differences between the old covenant and the new. In the old, it's an ethnic community. Now, in the church, we don't gather together based on our ethnicity or our age or our socioeconomic status or any other external thing. We gather together as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our faith in Jesus that makes us part of this holy nation. I would just point this out to you. In verse 9, the first word Peter says is but. But. He's making a contrast Right from the outset of the verses that we're starting with. And the contrast is in verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. And you notice in verse 7 that there's two groups of of people that Peter has in view. Those who believe and those who do not believe. Those are the two groups. And Peter says something amazing in verse 8. He's talking about those who stumble over the cornerstone. We sang about the cornerstone this morning. They stumble, Peter says, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's a whole other sermon. And we'll talk about it sometime, but not this morning. This is what you need to know. Peter's not surprised that there are people who don't believe in Jesus. It does not catch him off guard in the least. He understands fully there are people who believe and there are people who do not believe. And that's the distinction. And he's just talked about, in verse 8, those who do not believe the truth about Jesus. In verse 9, he says, but you, but you, you're not those people. Church, Christian, you're not those who don't believe in Jesus. You are those who believe. It's a believing community. And Peter says something that ought to be obvious. In the United States today, it's not all that obvious. Believing in Jesus makes a person different. Believing in Jesus makes a person different. Now, you live in the Bible Belt. So there's tons of people in the Bible Belt who will say, I believe in Jesus, and they are no different than the world. And what Peter would say to them is, you don't believe in Jesus. You you think you do, or you've repeated a little mantra that someone said, repeat after me. Or you can answer all the right questions, but you don't actually believe in Jesus. Because when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that means you've been born again. Only those who have been born again put their faith in the Lord Jesus. God has started a new work in you. And you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you're different. You're a new creation. You're set apart, or the Bible word would be holy. You're not the same You're different. Peter says it's not just that we've been made a nation. We've been made a holy nation. A set apart people. A different people. And the distinguishing mark between the world and the church is that the world does not believe and the church does believe. We're a believing community. Our faith in Jesus is not up for negotiation. It's not going to need to be updated now or in another 20 years. It's not something we make up on our own. It's not something we vet with the world to see how they feel about it. It's something you either believe or you don't. Peter's calling the church a believing community. Secondly, God has established the church so that we would proclaim His excellencies. So that we would proclaim His excellencies. Now this is something we've talked about a decent bit over the last couple weeks. And we're going to talk about it again a decent bit this morning. And I'm just telling you, as your pastor, I think it's really important for you, for us to understand this really, really well and to have it settled in our minds and our hearts when it comes to this idea of the church is created to proclaim the excellencies of God. Look what Peter says in verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That... If you like to make notes in your Bible, the word that may seem unimportant, but it's actually really important. Because Peter's telling you with the word that, a reason. He's explaining. Why is it that we're a a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God? Why did he do that? Why did he make us into those kinds of people? Here's the reason. That you may proclaim... The excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous life. The fundamental reason we exist as the people of God, the family of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church, is that we would proclaim the excellencies of God. That's the fundamental bedrock reason. And that happens in two ways. It happens first in worship... And second, in mission. And the order has to be in that order. You cannot reverse that and say, fundamentally we exist for mission and then we're also going to worship. You have to get this right or your church goes in radically different directions as the last couple years have showed us. Fundamentally we exist to worship and to proclaim the excellencies of God in the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, and the sermons we preach. Only secondly do we exist for mission, to proclaim the excellencies of God to those who don't know Him. So, I'll just tell you this, you've heard me say this before, but this has to be settled in who we are as a church. In the United States of America, the overwhelming majority of Protestant evangelical churches operate on the assumption, whether they realize it or don't, some realize it, some don't, but the overwhelming majority operate on the assumption that the church exists fundamentally for mission, to reach people for Jesus. And they skip this more fundamental piece of worship, and they jump right to the mission part. And what I'm telling you is that the last couple years have revealed what has always been true, that when you make mission the fundamental bedrock of who your church is, your identity, what you do, what you don't do, you will inevitably make compromises about the truth and the glory of God in the name of reaching people. You will. It's not a matter of if, it's when. You will eventually say things like, you know, these people that aren't coming to church, They don't want to hear about this, 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 and this. So we're not going to talk about those things. We're going to still believe them. We're just not going to talk about them because we don't want to make them uncomfortable when they come in. And that would run them off. And you know what that leads to? That leads to, it doesn't take long, saying, these things are not even really all that important. I don't know why we believed in them in the first place. So we just get rid of those things and pretend like they're not there. This will lead to churches saying, you know, the reason people aren't here is because church is so boring. That's the reason they're not here is because it's boring. So we should make it not boring. We should make it exciting. What could make it more exciting? And we'll come up with all sorts of ideas about what might make this more exciting. We'll say, you know what? People don't want to come. They don't want to come and not have an experience. Life is about experiences, So we want them to come to church we want them to have an experience. What do we need to do when lost people walk in so that they have the right kind of feeling or experience or emotional reaction to what's happening in the room? Or maybe somebody says something like, you know what? There's all these people. They're not coming to our church. We know they live across the street from us. They work with us. They go to school with us. How could we get them here? What if we gave them stuff to come here? Like, what if we just said, if you come to church, we'll give you a ticket and then we'll have a drawing for TVs, trips, vacations, cars. I mean, I'm not making this up. This is what churches do. And it's done in the name of we want them to come. We want to reach them. But you know what ends up happening? People will come. People will come. But they won't be coming to church. They'll be coming to a concert. They'll be coming to a bingo hall or a raffle. They'll be coming to get some emotional fix that doesn't last 20 minutes when they walk out the door. They won't be coming to church and they won't be getting Jesus. This has to be settled. When a church makes the decision... That we are going to make all of our plans based on what we can do to reach people. That affects who you become as a church. But if you will make the decision, if we will make the decision, you know what? We are called to proclaim the excellencies of God. And that happens first and foremost in worship. In the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, in the sermons that we preach... That will be a, a, a governing factor that keeps us pointed in the right direction as a church. We will understand our primary purpose as a church isn't to reach people, but it's to worship and it's to glorify and it's to honor God. And the things that we do or we don't do need to reflect that. The songs we sing, the sermons we preach. Are we here just to give you life tips? How to be a better you, how to have a better family, how to have a better marriage, how to have better kids, how to have a better job, how to have better money, how to have better health. Is that all we're here to do? Are we here just to put on a show and to entertain you and to make you say, wow, that was amazing and so creative, I'm so impressed. Am I here to make you think I'm funny or insightful or any of the rest? None of that. Here's the bottom line truth. What we do in this room ought to have very little to do with us. And it ought to have everything to do with God. Not our preferences or our desires, but proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into light. Then we leave this place. And you go to eat, you go home, you go to work, you go to school. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find people who know nothing of the excellencies of God. And they're not proclaiming the excellencies of God. They're proclaiming the excellencies of all sorts of things. I don't think I need to go down the list with you, right? I mean, the world proclaims that there are all sorts of excellent things out there. And they celebrate all sorts of things other than the excellencies of God. And as the people of God who have gathered together to proclaim His excellencies together... We go out in the world, we look around, we say, these people aren't proclaiming the excellencies of God. They don't know anything about the excellencies of God. So what do we do? We open our mouth and we tell them. That might be across the street or that might be around the world. But we go out on mission, not because it's primary, but because worship is primary. And when we leave this place, we say, there's people who aren't worshiping God. They're not proclaiming His excellencies. Maybe they've never even heard of His excellencies. We send you out, equipped, to share your faith with the people in your life. We ask you to give 10% of our church budget. That's a lot of money. We ask you to give sacrificially so that we can send missionaries to the ends of the earth. Why? Because when you go to the ends of the earth, there are people who love the World Cup, and they've heard of Coca-Cola, but they don't think Jesus is excellent. So we want to go tell them. we got something better than the World Cup. We got something more satisfying than Coca-Cola. We have life to offer you. And we want you to proclaim the excellencies of God just like we do. We want people to proclaim the excellencies of the triune God, the Father who plans our salvation, the Son who accomplishes it, and the Spirit who applies it to our lives. And when they repent of their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome them in to the church, to the body, to the family, to the temple, to a holy nation. Not one that's going to play in the World Cup or in the Olympics, but to a people who belong to God and a people who exist to proclaim His excellencies. Now, one more truth and we'll be done. The church is called to remember who God is and what He's done. Verse 10. Once you were not a people... But now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. I'll be honest with you if you read through 1 Peter, there's some stuff in this book that leaves me scratching my head. There's parts of 1 Peter and 2 Peter that I say, you know, here's my best guess, but I I don't know. This is not one of those verses, this is very simple. And we need to hear it on repeat. Once you were not God's people, but now you're His. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. We tend to forget it just like Israel tended to forget it in the Old Testament. I don't know if you've read through the Old Testament, but it's basically the story of God making promises to Abraham's family. And Abraham's family forgetting the promise. Like, that's the spoiler alert. God makes the promises, the people forget over and over and over again, till it ends up in exile. Psalm 78 is a psalm written late in Israel's history, and it's a psalm that basically says God has done great things to make you his people, and you just always forget. God remembers, and you don't remember. Look what we read in Psalm 78. He, God, remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. That fits with Ecclesiastes on Wednesday nights. Your life is a mist, it's smoke, it's a vapor, it's a breath. God remembered who his people were. He didn't have unrealistic expectations. God remembered. He always remembers. What about his people? Well, they did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. They came out of Egypt and they forgot. They ate the manna in the wilderness and they forgot. They walked into the promised land on dry ground, walked straight into a city whose walls had just fallen down, then they forgot. They got a king and a kingdom and a temple and a capital and it was nice, then they forgot. They're always forgetting, just like we are, prone to forget, prone to wander. 1758, a man named Robert Robinson wrote a hymn, we still sing it today, Robinson wrote the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And I just want to read to you some of the words as we close, and then we're going to sing this hymn together, thinking about our tendency to forget and to wander from God. It says, Jesus sought me when a stranger... I used to be a stranger. Once you were God's people, once you were not God's people, now you're His people. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood O oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love here's my heart Lord take and seal it seal it for thy courts above God wants his people to remember We're prone to forget, and we're prone to wander, but God wants us to remember. Once you were not His people, now you're His people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Such a simple verse, but something that we forget so quickly. God wants you to remember this, so He's given you His Word, the Bible, to remind you of who He is and what He's done to save us. He's given us His Spirit We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who convicts us of truth and righteousness and sin so that we might remember. And He's called us into a church, a body, a family, a temple, a nation so that we would gather together every week for a national family reunion. Not to entertain each other, not to perform for each other, Not to make each other laugh, not to raffle off prizes, but to remember and to proclaim the excellencies of the God who called us out of darkness and into light.